Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapter three. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi everybody, welcome to Genesis chapter three and our discussion tonight. And I titled it, But in the Beginning, It Was Not So. It's really good for us to think about what it was like before the fall. We have to know what it was like before the fall. Tonight's about the first sin and its punishment, Genesis chapter 3. I took from John chapter 10, where Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus, came that they may have life and have it abundantly abundantly. God is always a God of life. And the scriptures are scriptures of life. There is no death in God because he's eternal life. He wants you to eat from the tree of life. He wants you to read his book of life. There's no death in him. And he created us. He created man from the ground last week. And what does the Baltimore Catechism tell us? Why did God make us? And everyone would say back in the old day, they would have the answers memorized. God made us to show forth his goodness and to share with us his everlasting happiness in heaven. He wants to share his life with us and he wants our beatitude. And our catechism, first thing it says, first sentence, God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. So God wants us to share in his own divine life, to really be partakers of his divine nature, literally. And so man was created from the ground and from his side, God made woman from a rib of man and God himself gifted the man, the woman. He brought her to the man, and this was marriage. This is the primordial sacrament of marriage. It was a perfect match, literally made in heaven, in the image and likeness of God, a trinity of persons God created them, male and female God created them. And so we know that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. And it kind of blows our mind, but three persons in one God. Then how do two persons reflect three persons of God's image? Marriage is the very first primordial sacrament in the Bible. And Jesus himself said this in Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus. And they asked him, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, for your hardness of heart, he wrote this command. But from the beginning of creation, male and female, God made male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So God says from the beginning, it was not so. This is an indissoluble covenant marriage. It's indissoluble. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. 
I looked up what does indissoluble mean in the secular dictionary. It means not dissoluble. <laughs> it especially means incapable of being undone, incapable of being loosened or separated or dissolved or broken or put asunder. So it's permanent. It's an indissoluble covenant. And then I looked it up in the Catholic Dictionary, Denziger's 1807 Catholic Dictionary. And it said, indissolubility is the permanence of marriage which cannot be dissolved either by the withdrawal of consent of the married partners or by civil authorities. Christian marriage is absolutely indissoluble as defined by the Council of Trent, condemning anyone who says the church errs when she has inculcated and continues to inculcate in accord with evangelical and apostolic teaching, that the bond of marriage cannot be dissolved by reason of adultery on the part of one spouse, and that both parties, even the innocent one who gave no reason for adultery, can contract a new marriage while the other spouse is alive, and that both the man who marries another wife after dismissing an adulterous one commits adultery, and the wife who marries another husband after dismissing dismissing an adulterous one commits adultery. Now, if you're in that situation, we've had three people from Seeking Truth get their marriages convalidated. The Roman Catholic canon law uh, has something called convalidation. It makes the putative marriage valid following the removal of some impediment, and it's something to check into at the chancery office. King Henry had a different solution. He said, I want a divorce. And the church said, no, you can't have one. And he said, fine, I'll start my own church, the Church of England. And he created the Anglican Church. And he took six wives. And this is how you can remember the wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. So it didn't go so well for multiple marriages. The marriage covenant with God is between man, woman, and God. Three are involved and it's indissoluble. Now, Jesus and his father are one. They're one and the same. He says to Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the father. His very last prayer before he goes to the cross, his very last prayer to the father is this. And this is eternal life that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in thy own presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. What glory is that? That's that uncreated light, that glory, that luminous light of God that he had before they created together. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, Father. So Jesus and the Father are one in the same. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and the Son are one in the same being. The perfection of their love spirates into another living person of their same essence called the Holy Spirit. And we say in the Nicene Creed every Sunday, we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the river of life in the garden. He's the giver of life in the Nicene Creed who proceeds from the Father, the union of the Father and the Son. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's an indissoluble union in marriage that is open to the life giver, the spirit of life. The couple is one as the Father and Son are one and the spirit of life that throws through them, they get to co-create 
with God, another living person. And so marriage must have what we call fecundity. It's a noun, the ability to produce an abundance of offspring or new growth, fertility. And it says in Catechism 2335 that each of the two sexes is an image of the power and tenderness of God with equal dignity, though in a different way. The union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh the creator's generosity and fecundity. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. All human generations proceed from this union. So that's where we get the sacrament of marriage. Fecundity is a good, it's a gift, and it's an end of marriage. My giving life, spouses participate in God's own fatherhood. So he trusts us to be co-creators and participate in his own fatherhood. That's a really special gift. The spouse's union achieves a twofold end of marriage. Catechism 2363, the good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. These two meanings or values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life and comprising the goods of the marriage and the future of the family. Strong statement. The conjugal love of man and woman thus stands under the twofold obligation of fidelity and fecundity. Fecundity is a gift, an end of marriage for conjugal love naturally tends to be fruitful. A child does not come from outside as something added to the mutual love of the spouses, but springs from the very heart of that mutual giving as its fruit and fulfillment. So the church, I love this, which is always on the side of life. The church is on the side of life, like God. It teaches that it's necessary that each and every marriage act remains ordered, per se, to the procreation of human life. This particular doctrine, expounded on numerous occasions by the magisterium, is based on the inseparable connection established by God, which man, on his own initiative, may not break, between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. I know that Steve and I didn't get much premarital training on any of this. I don't know about you guys in the 70s and 80s, but the fecundity of conjugal love cannot be reduced solely to the procreation of children, but must extend to their moral education and their spiritual formation. Did you morally form your children? Did you spiritually form your children? Or did you think, we'll turn them over to the Catholic school? That's their job. Because the role of parents in education is of such importance that it is almost impossible to provide an adequate substitute. The right and duty of parents to educate their children are primordial and inalienable. Wow. How then do two persons reflect the three persons of God's image? Well, we learned last week in Genesis 2 that for the man there was not a helper found suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, God made into a woman and brought her to the man. This at last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, capital W, a name she shall be called, said God, woman, because she was taken out of capital M man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed because they were clothed in luminous original glory of God. And this is what the theology of the body teaches. John Paul teaches this, and I'm going to read just the thesis paragraph. Man appears in the visible world as the highest expression of the divine act of giving because he bears within himself the inner dimension of the gift. And in this dimension, he brings into the world his particular likeness to God, with which he transcends and also rules his visibility in the world, his bodiliness, his masculinity or femininity, his nakedness. A reflection of this likeness is also a primordial awareness of the spousal meaning of the body pervaded by the mystery of original innocence. In this way, in this dimension, that is the dimension of the gift, this most original sacrament, namely marriage, is instituted in the creation of man and woman, and it's constituted. And we understand a sacrament as a sign that efficaciously transmit in the visibility of the world the invisible mystery hidden in God from eternity. It is the mystery of truth and love. That is the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of divine life, in which man receives a real participation. In the history of man, original innocence realizes the very beginning of this participation, and it is also the source of original happiness. This sacrament, marriage, as the most original sacrament, as a visible sign, is constituted through man as a body, through the body's visible masculinity and femininity. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Pope John Paul II. Now, his theology of the body is 768 pages like that. And in October of 2009, Steve and I were going to the Holy Land for the first time. And Steve was coming with me to the Holy Land. And I brought this book for me to read. I was going to read this while we were on the plane and there. And Steve grabbed it and said, oh, what's this? And I said, oh, it's John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And he said, oh, can I read it? And, and I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get it back for the whole two weeks. He had it and he, I would look over and he was just absorbed in it. And sometimes he'd tear up and sometimes he was just blown away by reading it. George Weigel considered John Paul II's work to be a theological time bomb that may take almost a century to appreciate fully or even assimilate. It may prove to be the decisive moment in exercising the Manichaean demon and its depreciation of human sexuality from Catholic moral theology because the Pope takes embodiedness so seriously. Weigel said he was surprised that so few priests preach these themes and only a microscopic portion of Catholics seem to even be aware of this great accomplishment, which he considers to be a critical moment, not only in Catholic theology, but in the history of modern thought. Weigel provides three reasons possible for this neglect. Number one, the density of the Pope's material, the media's preoccupation with controversy rather than substance, and the fact that John Paul II is himself a figure of controversy. It will take time to appreciate him and his magnificent contribution. So a holy marriage between a male and female who are open to life gives great witness to the Trinity. 
God created the human body, male and female, to transfer the visible world, the mystery of the communion of persons in the Trinity, which human beings come to share through sacramental sign. And it's why we pray that our kids and our grandkids have a sacramental marriage. There's grace in that sacrament. Male and female, God created them in his own image and likeness. And can you tell which one's male and which one's female? <laughs> Do you know what unlocks what? The gift in marriage, male and female, open to life. Become, we become co-creators with God. We get to take part in his fatherhood. Man donates the seed, woman donates the egg. God breathes his own breath, the spirit of life, and a new person emerges from that union, that perfect union of love. And we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. We believe and we just don't want him in our marriage bed. Marriage is quite special to God. And he is in on the covenant with man and woman from the beginning. It's three. It's a trinity. Because God, from before the beginning of time, created the primordial sacrament to reflect himself as a trinity of persons. But everything changes tonight. After Genesis 3, everything changes for the world. It becomes disordered and fallen. But in the beginning, it was not so. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat any of the trees of the garden? Let's fact check that. <laughs> Back in Genesis 2, only Adam was alive. Only Adam had been created when God gave Adam only this command. He commanded the man, saying, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Eve is created a few verses later. She did not even hear that command. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Hmm. Did God tell Adam they were not allowed to touch the fruit? No. So can you imagine a woman exaggerating? <laughs> Or perhaps another option would have been that Adam put a fence around God's law to protect Eve. He might have told her, God said you can't eat it and don't even touch it, you know, just to protect her. Or he might have said nothing. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will not die. Now remember last week in Genesis 2, when God said the day you eat of it, you shall die to Adam. God was using the, the Hebrew word is die, die, a double death. God said, you will, if you eat this fruit, you shall die, die. But the serpent said to the woman, singular, only one die. Oh, you shall not die. Hmm, interesting. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, why, those are all good things right? She took of its fruit, she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That's the New American translation that the USCCB uses, that we use in the Catholic Church. It tells us that he was with her. Ah, interesting. And he ate. Now, 
she got a threefold temptation and it's something for us to watch for because John talks about it in 1 John 2. There's a threefold temptation that Eve had and sin often operates this way. A lust of the flesh. It's good. It's pleasurable. It's delicious. Could be pleasurable. Could be sex. Lust of the eyes. It's a delight to the eyes possessions, money, and the pride of life. It's desired to make one wise, pride and power. They could be smarter than God. The woman saw all of these, the threefold temptation, good for the food, delight to the eyes, and desired to make her wise. So they ate. And then both of their eyes were opened. The minute they ate, both of their eyes were open. I like that picture because you see how Adam has, he's holding his throat. You see, he has that lump in his throat. That's called the Adam's apple. You know that? It, it's the prominence of the larynx because the chunk of apple got stuck in his throat. Who sinned first? Who sinned first? And whose sin is worse? Those are some questions the rabbis ask. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Who sinned first? And then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. His plan had worked perfectly, perfectly. Crafty, sneaky, sly, clever, liar. Who was created first? That's Hebrew for Adam. Who was given authority to name all creatures? Adam. Who heard God's command eye to eye, face to face, not to eat firsthand? Adam. Therefore, St. Paul says, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul often calls the new Adam or the second Adam. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. A third of the angels fell, we saw in chapter one. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Paul is not a sexist. Man is born of woman. Mary, Galatians 4, when the time was just right. Pow! And all things are from God, says Paul. For as by a man came death, for by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Paul sees the typology of, of Adam and the new Adam. Thus it was written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So both of their eyes were open. Adam is more responsible. They knew that they were naked. 
They sewed fig leaves together. They made for themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I'm sure they ran to him and said, Papa, we're sorry. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Here they are. Here comes the uncreated, unchangeable light of God. And they don't want to come into the light. They don't want his radiant rays shining on them. They don't want to be exposed. They know now. They both know that they are naked. And the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? God is looking for them. Did the God of the universe not know where Adam was? The omnipotent, sovereign God who knows all? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? I thought we had a covenant. I thought we were in a relationship. I thought you were partaking of my nature. God called out. God cried out. In the Hebrew, the true, the word is aliyaika. It's an interrogative form, but it's an expression of deep sorrow and deep grief. Where are you, Adam? It's a lament. It's used in lamentations. It's a cry of grief or mourning. But the Lord God cried to the man and said, where are you? Have you ever cried out to one of your own kids who's in trouble or who's come home and something's happened and you say, where are you? What? What happened? What? I thought, what? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. God does not hide from them. God comes looking for them. They hide from the presence of God. Uh, Adam and Eve were not hiding from God. They were hiding from the presence of God. They had willfully separated themselves from God's presence because sin always separates us from God. And one of the biggest reasons is because of shame. They're ashamed. They're naked and ashamed. But God did not ever, ever, ever want his beloved children to know shame. But they wanted to know evil. They ate from the tree of knowledge of evil. And because of their shame, they self-separated themselves from God. God didn't remove himself from them. They removed themselves from God. And so when we are ashamed, we too go hide from God. I know I have at times in my life, I bet some of you have hidden from God. You don't want to talk to him right now. You don't want to be exposed for your sin. You don't want to come into the light. You don't want to go to confession. You don't want to go to mass. A lot of college kids may stop going to mass when the minute they get to college, the first Sunday they don't go, but they feel deep down ashamed of sin and, and they're hiding from the true presence of God right now. They don't want that bright light in their eyes right now. They want to have some pleasure and fun because sin's fun. There's pleasure. It's desirable for the eyes, the lust of the body, the flesh. So shame keeps us hiding from God. And shame is a tactic that Satan loves and he uses often. He wants to keep people down. He wants to keep them in the bondage of shame. He does not want you to be free. He wants you to be entrapped. He wants you to be ashamed. He wants you to think you're worthless and no good and that you can't be forgiven. And that's the shame game that he plays. God has no part in that. He's an accuser and a condemner. So you have to listen to the voice. If it's accusing and condemning, that's not of the Lord. The Holy Spirit convicts. He convicts the heart. We can feel remorse, regret, sorrow for our sin. And that he cannot spurn when we come to repent. But shame is not of the Lord. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapter three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit Seeking Truth. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.